Intentions, presented by BHDP, where we take a look at trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. I'm your moderator, Brian Trainer, and I'm a workplace strategist at BHDP based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Today, we're in Columbus, Ohio, for our first ever higher education podcast with a focus on the academic library. And we have three guests today. First, we have Rebecca Lubas with Central Washington University, Bruce Massis of Columbus State Community College, and Tom Sens of BHDP. Welcome. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us uh, what you do at Central Washington University. Sure. So I am the Dean of Libraries here at Central Washington University, and we have one main library building, and we also have some satellite libraries at the university centers where we have outreach to community college for potential transfer students. And one of our goals is to really build a sense of community for the university. So besides all the traditional things that you assume that students do in a library, studying research for papers, we're really trying to forge the connections that will help encourage student success by giving them a sense of belonging. Ah, very cool. And that's, I should mention, Susan's joined us by phone. Bruce, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Bruce Massis, and I am director of libraries at Columbus State Community College. I'm also the accreditation liaison officer for the college, which essentially keeps the doors open. <laughs> yeah. So I've been doing double duty for quite some time. I've been there for almost 14 years. And I came up from Florida, and my kids are still questioning why we did that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so I was associate director of Ceflin, the Southeast Florida Library Information Network. And that was a system that worked in uh, 23 different libraries in five counties. Columbus State has around 27,000 students this semester. So growth is continuing. And since the state indicates that in order to get our RSSI money every year, we have to provide success points. So student success is primary in everything we do. And the, the library building itself is the center of the campus. We're very proud of that. And we work with BHDP almost nine years ago on renovating that building. And it's become a real center of the community. So we're very proud of that. Yeah. So as a non-higher ed, because I'm on the workplace team, what's, what's SSI? And I, I'm jumping over Tom oh, here. The state it. share of, of uh, income, essentially. It's, okay. it's the money we get from the state every year. We only have two streams of income. We have that and we have tuition. Thanks for that. And Tom. So my name is Tom Sens. I'm client leader in higher education planning strategies for BHCP. Hard to believe I'm in my 26th year at BHCP, and it's wow. equally hard to believe it's been nine years, Bruce, since we worked together on renovating the Columbus State Library. It's incredible. So just a real quick history of me. So BHCP stands for the founders, Baxter, Hodel, Donnelly, Preston. So the H, Jack Hodel in his day, was really a library thought leader. He did a lot of libraries back in the 60s and 70s, and when I was hired as an intern way back in the early 90s. My first building was in addition to Lilly Library at Earlham College. It was a building that Jack did in the early 60s, and we did an expansion and renovation to it. So that was my first project in a library at BHTP, and it seems like we've been doing a library ever since. And 26 years later, we're doing work all over. In fact, we're going to be working together doing some visioning work with Rebecca this spring, so we look forward to that. Very cool. So one of the things that brings us all here today 
is we had the very first higher education roundtable. We do, BHDP does a trends and tension roundtable group. You guys did assemble for a roundtable at the Ohio State University. Yes, the Ohio State was the uh, forum. It was specifically around the academic library, correct? Mm-hmm. And everyone here participated in that. That's right. But Rebecca, what was your impression of that engagement? What was the experience at the roundtable? First of all, it was definitely the case. It it was one of these things that was a bit reassuring because the colleagues that had been gathered for the roundtable across the country were facing many of the same challenges that I was. Many of us are dealing with competition on campus for the spaces. There's large drives for student success and, and retention in a way that I think there was not necessarily about 25 years ago when I first entered the profession, that there's a greater recognition now about what students need help with to succeed, and especially as a lot of our institutions have first-generation-to-college students who maybe don't necessarily have the family experience of how to navigate a university. And libraries are playing a bigger and bigger role in that navigation piece. And then also, we talked quite a lot about communicating the value of the library in that endeavor and how libraries are a very key factor to that. One takeaway I had from the roundtable is now more than ever, We really have to be marketers of ourselves for how we contribute to that piece of the university's goals. What about you? How was the uh, the roundtable experience for you? Well, I will say I I agree with Rebecca in terms of the takeaways. One of the things about the roundtable was if you looked around the table, you kept seeing people nodding their heads in agreement, (laughs) which always reminds me that, yes, we have these issues and we speak the same language. Let me speak to Rebecca's point about marketing ourselves. That's another thing that came up at the roundtable was that, can we do better at marketing ourselves on campus and being able to lobby and being able to sit with the right people to be able to get buy-in for some of the things that we're doing? And I think we're getting better at that. And I think we're getting better at it as a profession as well. Uh, The American Library Association now has taken up the mantle of ebook and that publishers are trying to restrict the number of usage that you can have from a public library in the first eight weeks. We can only have one copy circulating, which is ludicrous for a big institution where you might have hundreds and hundreds of people waiting for that book to come out. But ALA has stood up and said, this is unacceptable and we we, uh, not agree with this. And with the numbers of students on our campus gravitating more towards e-books and free materials through open educational resources, that the trend is shifting away from buying textbooks and more towards free materials because everybody's looking for a way to be able to cut college costs. And clearly that's a way to do it. That's interesting because I saw a summary from the roundtable and one of the things that was top of mind was the analog to digital migration. So that seems to be where you're going with that. Were there other components to that analog to digital? Well, I think one of the issues is if, if you move in that direction, do you use what's already out there? Or do you encourage your faculty to create their own OER, where, of course, it's a cost to the college, but in the end, it's a savings for the student. So schools that have gone the way of digital access 
to free materials have saved students millions of dollars. That's interesting. What struck me from what you were saying, too, is that you're literally spending money to make something free. But the idea is that maybe there's a return. You know, you're it's not... An investment. Yeah, it's an investment. You're not driving revenue directly from this, but indirectly, maybe more people will come because it's a better experience right. at, from the student perspective. And right? that's, that's really one of the... Uh, we have a number of impetus behind this. If they pay less or nothing for textbooks, maybe they'll take another course. Yeah. And that's beginning to happen. You know, I'm so proud to say that uh, the initiatives around the country, around OER, are all centered in the library. Driving social change and make it, creating a better experience. So were you a facilitator, Tom? As, as yeah. This yes. I facilitated with my colleague, Paul Orban. You know, my takeaway was that you, know, you think about the makeup of the roundtable. So we had big schools, R1 schools, Ohio State University. We had Penn State University. We had Columbus State, a community college. We had small colleges, Mount St. Joe, Grace College. And the interesting takeaway was that it wasn't all these different challenges. There were these kind of key issues that we were all dealing with. It was just that they were scalable. If it was a small college. It would be in the same issue, but in a, a smaller scale than, you know, it would be bigger at a, a larger institution, such as the topic that we've been talking about. You know, what is the future of print and how is it unique to each institution? It's also a budget issue. There's finite dollars in, in the budget every year. We have to be able to balance what we purchase electronically and what we purchase in print. Many faculty still prefer their material in print. It's interesting, the argument that they give us for not moving either totally or more towards digital material is they like the notion of serendipitous browsing. Oh, yeah. Which is always the argument faculty uses. You know, if you, if you make this electronic, I can't search a database. Mm -hmm. Well, you can, but <laughs> it's not the same as standing in front of a shelf of books and looking for your book, but seeing what's on the left or the right side of it. Maybe you want that one instead, or maybe you want that included. One of the great supports for me going to the library was just to browse and see what's there. Sure. It's hard to browse an electronic collection. And it shouldn't be an either or. I mean, yeah. it's still a balance between print and electronic. I think it's a matter of choice. I've got two Gen Z kids, a daughter who is a junior. She's studying nursing. I've got a son who's starting as a freshman. My daughter is totally digital, completely digital. And she reads everything online. I've got a son studying engineering. And the professor in the chemistry class said, hey, this is all available online, he still wanted to have the textbook because he wanted to highlight and just it was just his way of absorbing information. So you just have to be accommodating on what their needs are. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And as you're pointing out, and it's not necessarily generational, I definitely am observing that there still is a preference for print in the traditional college age students. I've been very interested over the years in the topic of the, the how much research is discovered by serendipity because it's something we hear anecdotally so much. This is actually a topic that I poked into with some research and faculty behavior studies a little bit. And there's a little bit of a disconnect between what they say they're doing and what they actually do. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. There will be a lot of faculty who say that they really value the serendipity of the shelf browsing, but when you probe at it a little more and try to find out the actual last time they entered a library and browsed the stacks, <laughs> the numbers really do drop off. 
it tends to be quite related to disciplines I found and I think that's part of the hybrid approach of it being print and electronic and not print or electronic is to try and identify the disciplines that really still do seem to respond to prints. So for example, art tends to be one of the areas where there's still that very high value of browsing art catalogs on the shelf and pulling them down and paging through them. Tom, you talked about scalability of problems based on size of like university. Is there a scalability to the solutions? Did you guys talk about solutions at roundtables? Scalability is, is important only in terms of, of future planning. I want to do something. Yeah. Well, if I don't have the resources, I can't do that something. So is there a way around that? And one of the ways around it is partnering. Partnering has become primary importance to us. When we need something, there's always somebody we can call, pick up a phone and say, listen, I need some help in doing this. Do you have some some knowledge about this? I mean, we are part of OhioLink. Given the numbers of members of OhioLink, which is more than 100 institutions, there's always somebody to connect with. The value of a library consortium cannot be underestimated. You can't operate alone out there anymore. Those days are gone. I was just going to go back to the scalability question. One of the things that came up was just, you know, in terms of smaller colleges, smaller budgets, larger universities, larger budgets. So I was just up at Grace College earlier this week, and Tanya Fawcett showed me an intervention that they made. And again, they're not a rich school. They were given a gift of the first president's books and all his stuff. So with a shoestring budget, they took a corner of their third floor, put his original desk, all his stuff, and created this little shrine to the first president. <laughs> then you go to the Ohio State University. I forget the guy's name, but the, the cartoonist that wrote Steve Canyon, he gave his collection, and it started an impetus of other cartoonists giving a collection. Suddenly, they had hundreds of thousands of these really valuable cartoons, and OSU being the true OSU they are, they did, I don't know, a $40 million new library to house this collection. Right. So again, it's about scalability, about taking those valuable assets and being able to show that they're value. What kind of partnerships are you connected to at Central Washington University? We're fortunate at Central Washington to be part of actually one of the most robust library consortia in the country, which is called the Orbis Cascade Alliance. It's the academic libraries of the state of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Our users have access to the, the physical collections through borrowing for all the 39 libraries in the consortium. What's also really great is that's what gives us the scalability for the bargaining power. So, you know, earlier in the conversation when we were talking about making a stand about publisher policies, it's really through consortia like this where we're going to be able to make a more significant stand with the publishers, either through bargaining with negotiating licenses in deals. Corbis Cascade is working on, they have a group called the Unique and Local Content Group that provides support for growing digitization and finding aids for archives and special collections, which is quite valuable too, because of course it's labor intensive to digitize special collections. But once you do it, you want a great platform for being able to share the information because you're putting a lot, quite a lot of effort into making it available to a wider audience than just who can physically come to your collections. You also mentioned earlier in the conversation, that's kind of really where the power of 
libraries is, is, is we know how to play together really well. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the challenges and the tensions we're facing can be addressed some of the challenges may be so big that we need like a multi-consortial approach. Yeah. Um, you know, while we've got a really great alliance here and we're anchored by some of the larger universities here in the Northwest, imagine how powerful that would be if we linked up with, say, the Big Ten Alliance. Agreed. And actually, there is ICOLC, which is the Consortium of Library Consortia. <laughs> and, uh, right. Ohio Link has joined that. Say that 10 times fast. Yeah, right. okay. I did want to point to the fact that Tom wrote an article, but it's about 12 major trends in library design. And I was struck by the first one, envision the library as place, because I've heard you both kind of allude to that. Just if I could, your library is library's place. You know, you think about the Columbus State Community College Library, you know, it's a three floor facility. And the first floor is just a buzz of activity where it's very, very loud. And you know, that that's the way it should be. As you go up into the building, it becomes more quiet, contemplative. And the third floor is a place where when a student wants to really hang out and hunker down and study. You know, that's the place that they gravitate towards. Right. And the other thing that's interesting about that dynamic, if somebody on that third floor starts to cause a commotion, oh my gosh, you don't have to have a librarian. It's those students who are going to come after them and say, <laughs> hey, shut that cell phone off. So. <laughs> yeah. In the renovation of the library itself, we saw it as progressively more quiet as we went up, even to the point where our central stairwell was a marble stairwell. But it was a noise funnel. Uh So from the first floor, you'd heard it up on the third floor. So what we did was enclosed it in soundproof glass. It's become a giant phone booth, essentially. So it's worked exactly the way we envisioned it. Have you had a similar experience? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. What happened in other libraries I've been in is that the students really will self-police the areas that are seen as these are the quiet serious study spaces, and they get very protective of them. But it also reminds me of something really interesting that happened here at Central quite organically. The librarians here had had done a project to pull together from the main stacks the original normal school collection, because Central Washington University, like so many universities, started out as the state normal school for teachers' education in the late 1800s. Over time, the original collection just got absorbed in the stacks. And the librarians here did a project where they pulled together those old books and they put them in a particular area on the second floor of the library. So you have this area where there's several stacks of really old books and you walk into it and it has that old book smell. Oh, I love that. And (laughs) and we totally didn't do this intentionally, but students started pulling furniture into that area because they wanted to study there. They weren't actually using the books as best as we could tell, but they just liked that feel of, I am studying among these stacks of old leather-bound books, and it makes me feel more serious. It makes me focus. It creates an environment. So because of that, we've decided to push the idea further beyond just gathering those books together and really embrace what the students have done. We're purchasing furniture that has a more old style reading room feel. 
like a um, tufted leather get chairs. The, the lamps with the shades. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get some wingback chairs. Yes. We're going to celebrate it with a dedication, and the dedication is going to be timed for the one of the key figures in the university history for his birthday, and we'll do a little lecture about the history of the university and just celebrate it and basically mark it for the use that the students have come up with it, that this is the historic reading room for the library. Earlier speaking about how we're in a hybrid world of print and electronic, it's the acknowledgement of that the print is the physical object is more than just the information that's contained in the volumes. There is something that gives the students this feel that I am at a university and I do a certain activity here. That's part of the mystique of print as well. Oh, sure. It's a romance to it. I like the idea of creating an environment or an experience. That's, that's what it was. You're creating an experience for the students. Hey, Rebecca, your story kind of sparked one of the tensions that came up in the roundtables. Obviously, funding is very, very important. And one of the tensions was changing the mindsets of those who could potentially open up their pocketbooks. The thought was that you know, you've got these people who graduated in the you know, 70s, 80s that now have some money, but they think about the library as that library that they studied in in the 70s and 80s when it's changed so dramatically. I remember my assistantship when I was in graduate school was through the university libraries. So I worked in the art architecture library. Part of my job, obviously, was to shelve books and to help students with research. But another part was it was called the Coke police. So I'd have to go around the <laughs> library. Anybody that had a Coke or anybody who had any kind of a drink, I had to physically take it away or escort them out of the library. Wow. So now that's changed on its head. I mean, not only, I mean, it's a place where you're able to come, bring your coffee, bring you know, some kind of a light snack. But it's a place where you're able to enjoy that. And just people understanding that libraries have really changed the way Way that the student experience takes place and it's so important so hopefully that change would enable them to say hey I want to invest in this you know this kind of cool space speaking of students in the 70s and 80s there's this space in our libraries that's nicknamed the fishbowl probably very common any space that has a lot of glass that you can see in before we allowed food throughout the libraries it was the one place in the library where you were allowed to have food and where you were allowed to talk at a normal volume because it's where the vending machines were ah. we've kind of embraced this and it's actually funny when i've met people around the town of ellensburg who are also cw grads you know i tell them that i'm the dean of the library one of their first questions is almost always, is the fishbowl still there? <laughs> Again, we've decided to totally embrace that. And even though there are additional areas of the library that are also noisier, we've kind of outfitted that. We're doing things like we're putting popular reading in there. So it's like if you're in there for a study break, you can also browse some print that may be more conducive to relaxing. Oh. We hold some of our popular finals week de-stressing events there. It's this kind of social center is a thing that we're totally embracing because it helps with that library, its sense of place, and the fact that we have very different spaces for very different activities under one roof is, I think, something that can serve our students very well. It's not just the place where the books are. Yeah, I think libraries organically have grown to be seen as this center for providing what you need to be successful for studying, and if that is de-stressing, so be it. I have to say, too, I notice a lot of what you're posting on LinkedIn 
Rebecca, it, you're really promoting those kinds of different services so that through social media, people know that the library's got lots of things going on. Every third Friday or something, there's pizza night, and there's just a lot of sort of community engagement. It's just really good to see that the library's promoting itself in a very, very important way. I think what's also neat about what you're doing, if you remember Arne Almquist at the roundtable where he said, you think about how you're positioning the library to get funding. Oh, we haven't had our library renovated in 30 years. We're in such need. That's not the way to do it. It's to go out and really work from a position of strength. Go out and do these social media posts. You have people giving third-party testimonials and say, hey, this is really cool. Suddenly, it could be that someone in upper administration starts to catch wind of that and say, hey, you know, this library's really got it going on. And then you start to get hopefully the support from that level of administration to be able to think about how they could promote and fund the library. Right. That's really helped us in terms of our outreach to the community artists, where we have a, a different art exhibition every month in the library. We have two galleries. We're booked for two years in advance by local artists wow. who get to see the, they get to put up their materials and the community is invited. Everybody's invited in. Mm -hmm. The shows are just great. I so, mean, and they bring in a lot of people, not just from from the student population, faculty population, but from the community as well. Library is art gallery. Yeah. Can't when you talk about distressing, de-stressing events, when you talk about art galleries, beyond the service of just providing knowledge and information, what are some things that have evolved through your experience in the libraries? What other services are being provided? In our multimedia studio, which is in the library, we run large screen presentations of soccer games and often they're the soccer games that represent a good part of the community. About 4% of our population is Somali, oh. and they're very interested in a lot of the soccer games that come up. We ran the World Cup, the entire World Cup in the library for the entire time it was on, and the place was <laughs> packed. Oh my gosh. One thing, too, that was cool to hear was, uh, this was, again, eight, 10 years ago, we haven't spoken about how the libraries function, but one of the things that we did as an outside intervention was we created this amphitheater, thinking that it may have some positive impact on the library, kind of bringing the library outside the walls and to hear that that amphitheater is just a forum for lectures and people hanging out and studying. So thinking about the library is not just being in those four walls, but being outside it and really a presence on campus. People on a nice day will often take a laptop out from our CERC desk, go out and sit on the amphitheater steps and do their work out there. Mm -hmm. And often you have to wend your way through the people who are sitting on the stairs out there. It's a there. great problem to have. Yeah. It sure is. There have been concerts out there. There have been choral concerts. Uh, faculty has held classes on the amphitheater steps. And people will just sit there and hang out and look at the sky. I mean, it's it's another de-stressing sure. operation that you kind of take for granted. So when you go back to Tom's point of library as place, I'm hearing you talking about creating like a safe and comfortable social hub. This is the attractor, not so much a place, but even a destination, make it a place that people want to right. go. That kind of touched on one of the themes at the uh, meeting about safety. We have a wide open campus, we're open to the city. Now I'm sending staff to active shooter training and, yeah. and drug training. Even the training for my staff has changed in the last couple of years, where it's a lot more focused on safety than ever before. 
That's a really interesting point. There's a book out, Palaces for the People. Eric Kleinenberg in chapter two talks about safe spaces, which he's talking about public libraries, but the importance of libraries to be those safe havens, but even on academic campuses, that libraries are those you know refuges that you know if you go there, or even the amphitheater that we just talked about, it's that safe haven where people know that they can go to and they can hang out and they're gonna be okay. Right. One thing I wanted to mention is that I think when we say the word safety in libraries, we're also talking about safety in another sense besides that very real and tangible physical safety sense. Libraries have really embraced the role of making everyone feel welcome, even if there's other parts of their immediate community they don't necessarily feel welcome in. That's a huge, huge role for us. There's a wonderful graphics campaign that's done by an artist who is also a librarian. Her name's Rebecca McCorkendale. She's done this wonderful graphic that she gives to folks free. And if you Google libraries are for everyone, you'll find it very quickly. And she's done these really streamlined, stylized graphics that show different kind of users of the library. And she's also translated it into multiple languages. In our entryway, we've posted the libraries are for everyone sign in English and in Spanish, and we've also posted it in American Sign Language. One thing we're working with her to do is we're going to also get the sign translated into the language of the Yakima Nation because they're the nearest native population and and central is on uh, Yakima lands. We're going to get that and we're going to put that up in the entryway as well. That is very cool. You know, I looked that up while you were talking, and I see the graphic, and it's a simple graphic, but it's powerful because you see multiple ethnicities. It looks like they're all holding the world in their hands, even to a person in a mobility chair with a screen. Libraries, I think, are really good at being able to jump on awareness of of the kind of resources that are going to open up knowledge to users, something that I'm very interested in is being able to serve a wider range of neurodiversity. Yes. And I think having quiet versus noisy spaces in the library is very important for that because folks who mm-hmm. have sensory issues definitely need the quieter spaces. One of the things that we've done is in addition to having the quiet floor, we have a couple of private rooms that we're designating as our deep quiet rooms. They're really just simple study carol rooms, but the point is is that you can reserve one of these rooms for a few hours and then that's like if you need quiet that's even quieter than being out on the floor. You know, you can lock the door and and those rooms are a little, little more private. They maybe don't have as much visual noise going on as well. I'm going to be really interested in assessing the usage on that space. Yes. Because if there's a greater demand for it, we may increase the number of those kind of rooms that are available. So that brings me to an interesting thing, because I was able to talk to Bruce before this. One of the things we talked about were uh, measures. What, What are the benchmarking, but also measurements? So when you talk about we've created these spaces because we think there's a need for it, we're going to measure those. And with you being on the accreditation board, you run that board or you are the board? What, I am a peer reviewer for the Higher Learning Commission. I'm also the accreditation liaison officer for our college, but I also go out 
then review other institutions for the Higher Learning Commission. And there's a, an expectation now that any time we, and not just the library, but departments think about putting up a new program or initiative, that two things they have to keep in mind, which is they have to create internal measures that can be measured after a certain amount of time to show that there's been student success, and external benchmarking to make sure that you've touched base with other like size and scope institutions so you can see whether you've been successful in comparison with them. The days are gone where you just wake up one morning and say, here's a good idea, let's just do it. <laughs> I, and I hate to break this down to dollars and cents, but the, the OER initiative is at least something that we can measure both by hopefully success, where success numbers go up, and by dollars saved, which legislators understand, and those are the people who fund us. So we have to be able to prove that what we're doing is a success, and that we need more dollars to do it to an even greater extent. So what are some of the things that you're measuring now? One of the things that came up recently, in the last two years or so, we have a large distance learning program. And we noticed that a number of students, lots of students, were coming to the library to take their distance learning courses. And historically, the notion of distance learning was that you, you do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> you're <laughs> not really that far away from the classroom if right, you come to the library. There's no distance involved. <laughs> so, 20 feet distant learning. Right? And their response was almost uniformly interesting. Because uh, they would tell us, I'm here for an online class, and I want to use your computer. And we would ask them, well, why are you here yeah. taking this? And they said, well, I like coming here because, A, your computers are faster and I don't have a fast computer at home, and you have librarians here, and I don't live with a librarian. <laughs> so if I need help, I raise my hand, and one of them comes over and walks me through the assignment. So what that's led to is the librarians are spending more time with each student than they ever did before. So we started reporting that out as a measure that we never reported before, because it never seemed important. Has that changed any like behaviors or, or process that you guys do at the library? The way we did the renovation, we built something called Reference Island, where they're kind of right out there on the floor. Yeah. And if somebody raises their hand, they go over to them. The renovation of the building, having Reference Island there, the librarian's very visible to the patrons. There's nothing like what used to be called Fort Reference, <laughs> where they've been sitting at a reference desk and have books in front of them. You Glass, couldn't even see maybe. them. Yeah, yeah. So that's led to a different interaction between librarians and the patrons. Well, what about you, Rebecca? What kind of things are you measuring through your university? We are also interested in tracking if for the students who have gone above and beyond library education through a first year class, if they've actually voluntarily taken our four credit library resources course, how that plays into their academic success. Very good. It's really interesting that we have this, you know, not all libraries offer a course that's for credit. That's something I think that'll be very interesting to see is, how, is, the, is the linkage between students taking that class and their, you know, their effective use in their, in their upper level research assignments. Yeah. Is that a one credit course, Rebecca? It is. We actually have a library science minor offered here. Students get interested in the library through the one credit class. They can actually take more and explore deeper and we actually even offer like a field experience through for credit through that program. 
Great recruiting tool for the profession. Thanks Absolutely. for doing that. That's really what we are really hoping to get out of that. The, the program is about five years old. We're also seeing a connection between now that there's students who've gone through the minor and then gone on to library school to get the MLS. Oh, um, so we're going to be very interested in that data. Because of the population of Central Washington University, I'm looking at this program as a hopeful gateway for recruiting in the profession, for diversifying the profession. That's awesome. Remember back, Rebecca, when uh, we were talking about some of the challenges, one of them was brought up was we as librarians, we all look pretty much the way we did 20 years ago. So how can we kind of change yeah. the way that new librarians are coming into the profession? Yeah, I, I have two more things. I want to know if you guys had both survived major library renovations. I know Bruce has. I didn't know if Rebecca had. Have you ever in your career been through some sort of major renovation? What was that experience like? Who did you bring to the table? I've been at Central for just under a year. So some of the experience I'm drawing from is from my previous lives, as I like to say. Sure. And when I came to the University of New Mexico earlier in my career, I arrived there just after the library had suffered a fire. Oh. The library leadership at the time used the incident really positively, but they also used the renovation as a chance to do new things. New Mexico's library learning commons came out of that bad incident and created a much more open first floor, you know, and a much more open with a lot of the things we think about now is being more standard for a library reference area with combined service points and the more inviting furniture and, and, and all the things we've been talking about. It, it's kind of like the classist crisis turns into an opportunity, right? Sure. So what about you, Bruce? What was your experience with a major renovation? What we did was we did a lot of uh, prospecting before we even put a spade in the ground, so to speak. And I sent a number of staff around the country to look at a learning commons in other institutions to see what they were doing. Because we want to kind of take best practices from all of them and create our renovation. They came back and we essentially wrote a book about it, an internal book that we submitted to the president and the board. They were very happy about the fact that we had done our homework. And they looked at that and they said, go forward. When we were working with Bruce, it wasn't just Bruce. We worked with your entire staff. So they were involved. They felt and they felt like they were part of the solution. They so. sure did. And they bring that up to me often. They were so pleased with the fact that there was a group of 14 people representing all the departments in the building who were part of this committee mm -hmm. and worked with BHDP to get it done. And they felt that they were listened to. And that was a big thing. I heard you also solicited student input for the renovation. Right. Like, we, how did you do that? Well, we did it in a number of ways. We did it on the website where we would put questions up there, and it was simple questions. What do you like about the library? What do you don't like about the library? Right. If we changed it, what would you like to see it change to? That kind of thing. We put whiteboards on the floor and left grease pencils up there, and they would write stuff up there every day. We collected all that information and created a document out of that and said that came directly from the students. We did one-on-ones with pizza and, and soda and that kind of stuff. I always said that if you're creating something without the input of the user, who are you creating it for? Mm -hmm. You're creating it for nobody. And we, we listened to them. 
And because we listened to them, before the renovation, we were bringing in about 9,000 students a month. After the renovation, it was 9,000 a week. And it's been that ever since. That's a good metric right there. It's pretty astounding. I think part of the success, too, is it was interesting, the very first workshop. So we're getting ready to start, and we were all ready for our, quote, presentation. Then Bruce hands out this book to everyone. It was the the benchmarking that you did. And we could tell that you had done your research. So as we went through the visioning and programming, we had an informed client that knew what they wanted to do. They kind of knew what was out there. You were prepared to go through that process. Hey, Rebecca, I know our time is short, but I have one final question or comment. Concept I want to throw out and just hear what your your thoughts are. So I had a debrief with Scott Lloyd, who's with Mount St. Joe University, and it was a short. Oh, the, oh, the round table was great. Really enjoyed it. It was kind of a short conversation. Mm-hmm. I drive back to the office. I get this email, this long email about. You know, suddenly, Tom, I was thinking about this. All these ideas came across, and one idea in his email that I thought was really intriguing was this idea he called selective pruning. So you think about librarians, we have this term called weeding, right? Which is you, know, you weed the garden so mm. that the better plants can prosper. But his point with selective pruning is that think more bigger picture strategically. Librarians love to offer all the services that they've always offered, but they're always challenged to be offering more. And you can only really do so much. So how do you selectively prune and think about the things that you really need to offer moving into the future, but thinking about the things that you do offer that you might consider, well, could this be handled by another department, maybe someone outside the library? Are the decisions that you're involved in where you're selective? selectively pruning to strategically position your library best for the university. So I'll just kind of throw that out there. No, and I think that's a great carryover. First of all, that's how I like to think of the shaping and sculpting the physical collections because the physical books, the ones that are useful are going to pop better if Mm -hmm. you weed out the ones that are no longer relevant and that haven't stood the test of time. But also the selective pruning, I think, is a great analogy to use for our services. For example, I'm in a library that's lucky enough to have our own IT department, which I think is great because it's certainly a bit challenged for libraries that have that relationship where they have to depend on central IT for everything. But I think that that's like a a great area for selective pruning to concentrate on just what is a library specialty in IT Mm -hmm. and where the more enterprise IT operations are ones we could farm out. We don't need to be doing and duplicating the same services. Let's just concentrate on the library technology. We also, on our campus here at Central, we have this great department called Multimodal Learning. Their main raison d'etre is to support online learning, but they also are the area on campus that has the makerspace. I'm really comfortable, even though a lot of libraries have definitely made a niche from for themselves with makerspaces in the library, I'm really comfortable with our partners doing that and with us working with them to do innovative programming rather than saying that this is something that has to live in the library because they've got the expertise Mm -hmm. to integrate the new technology let's use that rather than compete with it great point well i have an anonymous quote that i'll read for you for a second that i just came upon related to what we're talking about here academia is like a pie eating contest where the only reward is more pie. <laughs> we never seem to say no to anything. Exactly, exactly. No, right. How appropriate. How to write that down. Sorry. I like that. Very good. So, well, thank you very much for your time, yeah. Rebecca. Great, great conversation. 
Very much a Rebecca okay, Lubaz. wonderful talking okay, to you all. Uh, <laughs> we'll be in touch soon. This has been fantastic. Awesome. Bruce, it's thank changing. you very much. This, this My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Tom, it has been. Yeah. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP for this episode, The Future of Academic Libraries, with Rebecca Lubas from Central Washington University, Bruce Massis from Columbus State Community College, and Tom Sens from BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design. Mm-hmm.